Hey everyone, it's Steve here from The Emotion Machine. This is a new episode of The Emotion Machine podcast. I'll be covering a bunch of new studies that I've come across over the past month, giving some quick summaries on them and sharing some of my thoughts on them. But before I get into those studies, I just want to make a quick few announcements. Um, first, if you guys haven't already, uh, please check out my self-improvement guides and workbooks. You can download them for free um, at theemotionmachine.com forward slash free dash self dash improvement dash downloads. That is theemotionmachine.com slash free self-improvement downloads with a dash in between each word. Um, there's a bunch of guides on there um, that you can download for free. Um, no email required, so you can just go right onto the page and instantly download them. I have a bunch of guides that I've written over the past few years. You'll find The Science of Self-Improvement, A Roadmap to Relationships, My Meditation Guide, My Emotional Intelligence Toolkit, A Self-Improvement Workbook, A Gratitude Workbook, and a whole bunch of other different guides there. So. Um, I definitely encourage you to check it out if you haven't already. Again, it's theemotionmachine.com forward slash free dash self dash improvement dash downloads. There's really no reason not to download them and check them out. Even if you just skim through them a little bit, you'll probably find some good tips and some good advice. So definitely check those out. Um, second announcement, I'm still doing the live question and answer sessions on YouTube those are exclusive to people that have donated and supported the emotion machine um, on paypal and patreon um, this is going to be a new thing that i'm doing um, i'm going to try to be doing two live q a sessions each month and that's just an opportunity for you guys to ask me questions and for me to answer and give personal feedback and advice so if you want to join those please donate to my PayPal at theemotionmachine.com forward slash PayPal. That would be a one-time donation. Or if you want to do a reoccurring donation, which is really helpful for me, um, check out my Patreon at theemotionmachine.com forward slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And anyone that donates or supports through those two channels will get instant access to my past live Q&A sessions because I record all of them and you will get access to all of my future uh, Q&A sessions. So that's a good opportunity for you guys to get a little more value, get a little bit more um, self-improvement information and advice and just be able to speak with me live. So um, that's another opportunity for you guys. And one more quick announcement. I'm also looking for new coaching clients. Um, I usually do a free first session just to get a feel for you guys and see if we click, see if there's a way I can help you, whether it's with goals or relationships or just mental health in general. But um, if you want to sign up for a free coaching session, go to theemotionmachine.com forward slash next dash level dash coaching theemotionmachine.com forward slash next level coaching with dashes between all the words in the URL. 
Um, so that's it for now. Uh, those are just a few quick announcements, uh, different things that I'm up to. Um, but now I'm going to get into some of these studies that I've come across over the past month. And keep in mind, I'll have links to all of these studies in the show notes. So you guys can feel free to check out the links for yourself and um, dive a little deeper into the studies. But without further ado, let me get into some of the things that I've discovered recently. Uh, the first study I want to cover is called Income Satisfaction is Less Predictive of Life Satisfaction in Individuals Who Believe Their Lives Have Meaning or Purpose, a 94-nation study. This is a brand new study that's going to be published in the journal Personality and Individual Differences. And what they found was that um, the amount of money you make per year, your income, is is correlated to life satisfaction, especially there's been past studies that show, you know, making up to a certain amount of money per year contributes to more happiness and mental well-being. But um, one moderating factor is whether or not people believe their lives have meaning or purpose. And what they found was that, and this is from the abstract here, Using a sample of 97,739 individuals across 94 different countries, so that's a, that's a huge sample, a huge cross-cultural sample, this study sought to examine whether religiosity and purpose in life moderate the relationship between income satisfaction and life satisfaction. And what they found was that people who believe their lives have meaning or purpose are less likely to emphasize the role of materialistic aspirations. They're better able to focus more on intrinsic pursuits, and they're better at having the mental resources to cope with financial challenges. So this study really shows that having, a meaning, having meaning and having a sense of purpose in your life can be a great way to boost happiness that isn't dependent on how much money you have or how wealthy you are, and all these materialistic values. Um, this is something that I've stressed on the Emotion Machine for a long time now. You know, the purpose of finding meaning um, outside of just materialistic success. And, you know, someone with a job maybe that they don't make too much money in, you know, you're not rich, maybe you're, um, you know, just getting by in some ways. But if you have that sense of meaning or purpose, it can really add an extra layer of, of happiness to your life that isn't dependent on material success and material things. And, um, and specifically, you know, being a religious person is a, is a great way to add meaning and purpose to your life. And most importantly, understand that there is more to life than just material success. So... Um, this is just a great study that shows how meaning is often more important in our lives than, than material things and, and making money. Um, hopefully that's obvious to you guys by now, especially if you've been following The Emotion Machine. Um, I'm always stressing the importance of finding meaning and finding purpose and being able to wake up in the morning and feel like that you serve a purpose, that you add value to people's lives, that you're doing good in the world. And those things are really so much more crucial to happiness than just 
making as much money as you can. So that's one study I wanted to cover. Um, another study, and this is from a press release, but um, analyzing past failures may boost future performance by reducing stress. Study shows for the first time that writing critically about past setbacks leads to lower stress responses, better choices, and better performance on a new stressful task. And um, this is again something that I've, I've talked about on the Emotion Machine forever now. Um, you know, there's that cliche in self-improvement that, you know, failures are learning experiences and failures can help you to grow and improve into the future. That's a basic attitude that every successful and happy person has. The idea that failures are resources to learn from and grow from. And one of the best ways to really take advantage of that attitude and instill that attitude in us is to really take the time to write about our past failures and write about hey, what could I have done better in that situation? What did I learn from this failure? How can I use this failure to make better decisions in the future? And, you know, taking the time to just write out a short paragraph, a short essay that analyzes a past failure can not only help you learn from them and improve yourself, but also minimize stress, minimize the stress of that past failure. And I think that you know, writing about past failures, it helps you to wrap your head around them more. It helps to give you closure. You know, if you have a failure lingering in your head and you keep replaying the failure in your head, um, you know, it can start to eat away at you. But, but being able to write out these past failures and analyze them and think critically about them and see what you can gain from them um, is a great way to just take those failures and really turn them into something that you can use um, to be constructive and to grow and to move forward. So, you know, writing about past failures and, and writing about what you've learned from them is really a, an amazing exercise in self-improvement. And it just helps to instill that attitude that past failures are things that you can continue to learn from and grow from and that they're not the end of the world. So um, very important exercise that anyone can do. And um, I highly encourage you guys, if you have a failure that you've, been, that you've been thinking about for a while and that it's just eating away at your brain, just take a moment to get a piece of paper and a pen or open up a Word document and write about that. Um, another study, frequent eye talk may signal proneness to emotional distress. Your friends who can't stop talking about themselves may be telling you more than you think. People who talk a lot about themselves are not narcissists, as one might expect. Instead, those who say I and me a lot may be prone to depression, anxiety, and other negative emotions. This is also something I've written about before. Um, there's been other studies that, that look at people's language patterns and, and how they talk about themselves or their experiences and um, people that use the word I and me a lot um, tend to be more depressed and um, more prone to negative emotions and this actually makes sense from an evolutionary perspective um, I've seen evolutionary theories about sadness and, and how it's 
it's it's meant to focus your attention on problems in your life, right? When you're feeling sad, when you're feeling down, when you're feeling depressed about something, we tend to focus inwards because our brain wants to solve the problem. It wants to solve the problem that's causing us this emotional distress and causing us this negativity. So depression always makes us turn inward. And that's why rumination is such a a major symptom of depression is because it makes us turn inward and it's our brain trying to figure out what the problem is. Um, in this um, study, they, they mention the average, the average person speaks about 16,000 words per day, about 1,400 of which are on average first-person singular pronouns. Those prone to emotional distress and negativity may say I, me, and my up to 2,000 times a day. So people that talk about themselves a lot and, and use these first-person singular pronouns like I and me and my, they're more likely, that, that's a sign many times that people are, are dealing with negative emotions, that they might be feeling down and depressed um, just because they're, they're turning inward and they're more focused on themselves because their brain's trying to figure out what's making them sad. So it's sort of a problem-solving mindset. Um, and that's something that's natural for people who feel sad and feel depressed. Um, whether or not we can really take anything practical out of this study, I'm not really sure. Um, I could recommend that sometimes trying to fight off sadness and negative emotions means doing the opposite action from what the emotion is telling you to do. This is, a, this is another technique in emotional intelligence and I think specifically dialectic behavioral therapy. There's a technique called opposite action because every emotion comes with an action that, that it wants you to do, right? You feel fear, you want to run away. You feel anxious, you want to avoid. You feel sadness, you want to do nothing or focus on yourself and ruminate. And sometimes the best way to counteract negative emotions is to do the opposite of what the emotion is telling you to do. So if you're sad and you're thinking a lot about yourself and your own problems, maybe one good strategy is to focus outward and focus more on others and even help others um, more. You know, focus on, on empathizing with other people and finding ways that you can be kind to them or do a good deed for them or help them in some way. And doing that opposite action can often help to break the cycle of focusing only on yourself. So focusing on others in, in many ways can be a great boost to your mental health. It helps to get you, get you outside of your head outside of your own problems and helping others. Um, it's just a good way to boost your mental health, um, feel better about yourself, and get yourself out of your own head, right? Because when we're ruminating about things, we're always just stuck in our own head and we tend to overemphasize our own problems and our own needs and our own wants. So sometimes just shifting that focus to something outward and, and focusing on helping others can be a great way to break that pattern.
um, this is this is a one takeaway from the study um, that that comes to my mind. Um, one more, another study, another study. Um, this is again from a press release. Um, one technique therapists use that really helps depressed patients. Study is the first to confirm the value of Socratic questioning. Um, for those of you that don't know, um, Socratic questioning is just being very critical about what you believe and and trying to find holes in what you believe and questioning everything that you believe. You know, Socrates would go down to you know, down to the to town hall and just and talk to random uh, citizens and random people, the average person, and he would always make them question what they believe. You know, his main, you know, philosophical drive was to question, question people's assumptions, question people's beliefs, question people's expectations, and help them to break out of, um, you know, old patterns of thinking and old belief systems. And it's just it just means being super quizzical and, and super um, super you know just questioning everything. And this is a very helpful technique, especially in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you know, one of the the roles of therapists is to get people to question their negative beliefs and their negative assumptions. And you can get people to do that by just by just challenging them to defend their beliefs and to just keep asking questions until people start to doubt their own beliefs, even doubt their negative beliefs about themselves. So one example mentioned in this article is that, um, um, say you get divorced and you feel like a complete failure in life because you had to go through this divorce. A therapist may ask a series of Socratic questions to challenge that belief. Things like, is everyone who experienced divorce a failure? Can you think of anyone for whom that is not true? How does being divorced seem to translate into being a failure as a person for you? What evidence is there that you have succeeded and thus not been a total failure? Um, I always use this type of questioning when I'm working with people, when I'm coaching people. People will come to me with a negative belief that they have. They'll say, oh, no one likes me. No one likes me. And I'll say, well, um, how do you know no one likes you? Um, have you? Is there anyone that, that has been nice to you over the past month, over the past year? You know, try to find examples that go against your, your beliefs. Try to, to find... Um, Try to find the flaw in people's beliefs, especially when people are depressed and and down. You know, they they tend to speak in absolutist language, like no one likes me. I'm not good at anything, and those overgeneralizations are actually really easy to question and break apart, because people can almost always find counterexamples for their negative beliefs. You know, and, and almost no one can actually defend the belief that no one likes me or that, um, you know, I'm a complete failure at everything. You can always find examples that prove you wrong. 
And sometimes fighting negative beliefs is about proving yourself wrong or being proved wrong. And Socratic questioning and, and just constant questioning of negative beliefs is a great way to find the holes in our negative beliefs and find out that they're not actually as true as we often think they are. And by breaking apart those negative beliefs, we can start to form beliefs that are more constructive and more realistic and aren't just over-exaggerations of things that have happened to us. So very important technique, um, questioning your beliefs. Questioning your beliefs is such an important aspect of self-improvement and changing your attitude. Um, here's an interesting study. Women who meditate also tend to have a better sex life, study finds. Um, this was a study that's uh, going to be published in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy. And what they found was that um, they surveyed um, 451 women whose ages ranged from 19 to 70 um, regarding their history with meditation and their sex life. They found that 193 women with meditation experience tended to report better sexual functioning compared to 257 women with no meditation experience. And um, what the study, what the researchers theorize is that, you know, meditation can help with, um, can help with being more attuned to your body sensations and being more attuned to your desires. And, and often, you know, being more mindful helps you to enjoy experiences more. It helps you to tune yourself into pleasurable experiences and really absorb them and get the most out of them. So for me, this study makes complete sense that practicing meditation, practicing being more mindful can increase pleasure in general, but that certainly applies to sex as well. And maybe women especially, there are sometimes um, you know, social pressures to not enjoy sex or thinking that they're not allowed to, to be sexual. And I think meditation can help to awaken um, their body awareness and their body urges and help them to tap more into those sexual desires and uh, sexual wants. You know, the same is true for, um, you know, being mindful of eating. You know, when you're eating something that tastes really good, you know, it's good to be mindful and take a step back and consume the pleasure slowly and really allow yourself to tap into the sensations, the tastes, the textures, the smells. And that can often help to prolong pleasurable experiences and and intensify pleasurable experiences when we learn how to be in the moment and really be attuned to our body sensations, whatever they may be. So I thought that was a very interesting study. Um, another study about meditation, um, meditate regu regularly for an improved attention span in old age. This was a really interesting study that had people do a month-long retreat where they learned about meditation and, and practiced meditation with a group of people. And then they followed up on these people three months down, oh no, six months, 18 months, and then seven years 
after completion of the retreats. And that's one of the most incredible things about this study is that they, they followed up on people seven years later. And they found that people that did the, the retreat and continued to meditate um, regularly, you know, such as one hour a day for seven years, showed um, huge gains in cognitive ability and reaction time and focus. And it just goes to show you that, you know, there's so many short-term studies that show meditation can improve these things and improve cognitive ability, attention span, and focus. But it really, this study really shows you that doing, practicing meditation for a long period of time continues to, to help out with those cognitive gains. And this is especially useful for people who maybe are approaching old age and that's usually when our cognitive abilities start to decline, get worse. But, but meditation might be a really great way to, to, to slow down cognitive aging and probably also you know, protect us from dementia and other um, you know, mental decline that often happens as we get older. So this is just a really good study that shows meditation really is a great way to, to maintain your, your mental health and maintain your cognitive functioning. And it's just great that they were able to follow up with people seven years later and find that people who continued their meditation practice were able to sustain these benefits. Very interesting study. Um, one more study. Um, new study provides evidence that art courses can improve mental well-being. Um, this was a new study published in the European Journal of Public Health. And they found that people who, who took art classes were more likely to report higher well-being and um, get a boost in mental health and positive emotions. Um, this is consistent with a lot of art therapy. Um, which I still think is something that we need to practice more and focus on more is having an artistic endeavor, having a, having a creative outlet is also just so beneficial for our mental health. You know, for me, I like to make music on my spare time. I like to make electronic music on my computer. And, and it's such a great way for me to, to regulate my mood and to to add more meaning to my life as well. You know, just being able to be creative and express myself is, it just, you know, gives a great boost in happiness and well-being, just having that outlet to express myself. You know, not to make money. I'm not doing it to make money. I'm not making music to get famous. I'm not, sometimes I'm not even making music to share it with others. Sometimes I'm, oftentimes, I'm just making music for myself. I'm just making music because it's an activity that I enjoy doing. It's an activity that helps me to create something tangible, you know, create something that I can that I can see for myself, whether I create a new composition or a new song. You know, once I finish it, I just, you know, I have that that outlet to 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 show that I've done something productive and I've done something creative just for my just for its own sake 
And I think everyone needs to have some sort of artistic pursuit, some sort of creative hobby. Could be anything. Photography, painting, writing poetry, making music, um, you know, making arts and crafts, uh, you know, anything, anything that you're creating and you're trying to express your thoughts and feelings and experiences, any sort of activity that does that is beneficial for you. And I really urge everyone, if you don't already have some sort of creative hobby, try to find a creative hobby that you can start doing. You don't even have to be good at it. You don't even have to be good at making music or good at painting or good at writing. It just feels good to be able to create something and be able to express yourself. And this is one of the main benefits of art therapy and, and pursuing your artistic interests. So that's um, something that I've also urged many people um, you know, especially when I coach people, I say, you know, I always check to see if they have a creative hobby because I think it can be a really great tool for, for improving your mental health and improving your overall well-being. So anyway, that's the um, last study that I wanted to cover for today. Um, again, I will have the links for all these studies mm -hmm. in the description so you guys can feel free to check them out. Um, but yeah, that, this is some of the interesting stuff that I've come across over the past month. And I just wanted to share it with you guys and share my thoughts on it. So um, that's about it for now. Um, please make sure to keep following me on Twitter and uh, check out those self-improvement downloads. And um, if you really want to support the Emotion Machine and uh, join those Q&A sessions, um, please do so. I'm really trying to build an audience there. And I think it could be a really awesome thing if we can have a bunch of people participating in those Q&A sessions and asking me questions and getting my feedback on stuff. Um, you know, I literally eat and breathe psychology, so um, I can talk about this stuff for hours. And, um, and um, I, I thank you for listening and look forward to the next episode. Later.